So I did not grow up in a Southern Baptist church or uh, never went to Christian or Baptist schools. But when I was in seminary, I overheard one of my Southern Baptist like classmates talking to the Southern Baptist professor. And, and he kind of was telling the professor how, you know, at our church, in a month or so, we're getting ready for revival. That, that's what I heard, and I was just like, what? <laughs> How do you, what do you, and, but the professor, like, didn't bat an eye, you know, he was just like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll be praying for that. Um, so afterwards, I, I went up to this guy who made the comment, and I was like, so what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean you're having revival in a month at your church, that you're getting ready for that? And he was like, oh, oh, it's a, uh, uh, you know, where everybody goes to church like for multiple weeknights in a row and we encourage them to bring their friends and we bring in this special speaker from out of town. And this is kind of something we do on a regular basis. It's like every year. Um, and, and so I remember thinking, huh, uh, it's kind of strange. I mean, there's nothing r- inherently wrong with it. I, I think it's great to invite your friends and, you know, share Christ with them. Uh, Having it every night seems like a little bit much to me, uh, and having it every year seems a little bit, uh, I don't know, it's odd to me. But again, it was, it was brand new to me, so I'm not trying to disparage this idea. I'm just telling you this is how I felt, okay? Um, and so this week, we're actually going to talk about revival, um, and specifically, I want to talk about it because it does connect to our training. It, talk, it connects to what we've been talking about the last couple of months. So uh, I want to begin with biblically acknowledging that there are in- instances of revival happening, but I also I want to acknowledge that's true, but at the same time, you will never find in the Bible it explicitly saying, and then revival broke out, okay? So for example, we're going to look at one example uh, in Nehemiah where commentators, you know, like, uh, they, they call it revival, but Nehemiah, the author, does not say this is revival. Does that make sense? That people from the outside looking in, they're saying, okay, revival happened here, but, uh, but they don't say that in, in the book itself. So, so I go into this with just a little bit of trepidation because this is a, this is a term, this is a tag, a label that we're applying to this instance that Paul never applied when he went and preached the gospel in a cynic. Like, you just won't find this word. And if you find it, I mean, I'm a student too, so I'm learning. We're, we're learning to get, if you find it, I'd love to see it. But um, yeah, I'll do, I'll do the language work to see if this is, if that word is really there. I've never seen revival in all of my scripture reading, the, the word. But it's a biblical concept. So I want to tell you the story of Nehemiah's revival and it starts a hundred years before. It actually starts longer than that. <laughs> the story goes like this. God's people disobeyed. God sent them in a big, long time out. Kicked them out of the land, right? But with that time out, God promised, I will bring you back. And he did through Zerubbabel, the governor, who brought them back, restored the temple, because their city was just desolate, destroyed. And then another wave came back with Ezra, who restored the law to the people, Nehemiah led the third wave back. We talked about this last year as we walked through the book of Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah came back, he restored the wall, which was another broken element of their society. 
Um, but that's only half the story. Nehemiah wanted to restore the brokenness inside of God's people. And so in chapter 8, after, after restoring the wall, after they rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah had Ezra the priest, who was still around, he was still serving, you know, still alive and kicking, Ezra. And he read the law to the people, and here's what happened in Nehemiah chapter 8. Uh, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, the Levites, who were also religious leaders, they instructed the people and said to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. Because when the people heard what God had said, when the people heard God's revelation, they broke down. Okay? It was, it was like citywide weeping. They were broken over their brokenness. But Nehemiah says, you go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Nehemiah is saying, you go have a party, and if there's anyone here in our midst who doesn't have enough supplies, enough money to throw a party, you go supply for them too. So in the midst of that, he's saying, you go have a party because this day is holy to the Lord. Don't grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So, so even though the people should be grieving over their sin, that's a good and right thing to do. You see your sin, you see your brokenness, you grieve over it. Nehemiah is saying, this is the point where we stop. We stop grieving now because we trust in God's joy, not our own. His joy is our strength. And so that's, that's revival in Nehemiah. That's what the commentators say. This is revival. It's the brokenness over their own sin, their willingness to turn to God and do what God said, even though they didn't feel like it. The people all went home and, and partied because of God's grace. And so revival often, at least from my own exposure and historically, there, there, there often is extreme emotional experiences or things like weeping, but that's not the point of revival. And so the point of revival, just this is what I'm getting at today. The point of revival is life. It's to revive life, to live again. So here's the passage we're going to dig into today. It's Ephesians 5, 11 through 18. Paul writes and he says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible because light makes everything visible. This is why it's said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So, again, this passage is not explicitly and primarily about revival, but it does touch on four qualities, and it does talk, I mean, it, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It, talk, it, it talks about the qualities that are always true, of the work that God does in our lives and throughout the world. But I, I want to I highlight these qualities that we see in this passage as it relates to revival and then connect it back to our training. So first, let, let's look at the first quality of revival in this passage, and that is darkness. You see this in verses 11 through 14. 
Um, here's examples of darkness historically. The country of Korea, was South Korea, was largely uh, unreached for years, decades. Uh, about 100 years of missionary work happened, and, and they even thought about pulling the missionaries because it just wasn't that effective. Um, but at, at, at about the 100-year mark of the pioneering effort in Korea, the church began to grow exponentially in, in ways that is very difficult to explain outside of a movement of God. Um, here's another story of darkness. Uh, the church in Canada has been weak historically. Uh, but in 1970, there was a Canadian town that many people all at once got saved. Uh, and the crime, weight, the, the crime rate just plummeted. That There was little crime because everybody was choosing to follow Jesus. Um, and, and, and people wept and they confessed their sins openly and they were healed and, and, and major life change happened. Uh, or central Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania around the same time, um, there, there were these college campuses that had campus ministries in, in central Pennsylvania, and they typically bring about like five to ten, just a small handful number of kids to these uh, annual conferences. Uh, and then without any coordination, because there was no social media in the 70s, um, Bucknell and all these other small universities, they started bringing 100 kids that, that year. So how does that happen? Well, first, my point is that there was darkness in that society. There was darkness in those regions. People weren't seeking God. People weren't really interested. In Korea, in Pennsylvania, in Canada. And there's still darkness today. There's always darkness. The question is, how do we look at it? How do we frame it up? And so, so our, our, our culture today, uh, here, here's just some. I'm just going to highlight some of the darkness that I see. is not even the tip of the iceberg. But our culture has a sickening view of sex. And it's reflected in uh, addiction to porn, inside and outside the church. Uh, it's reflected in how our kids are and will be exposed to the idea that your sexual orientation is like a flavor of ice cream where you can choose, uh, you know, if, if you're attracted to boys or girls or both, um, that's okay. That's, that's, the, that's the world that our kids are going to be brought up in and around. Uh, if you identify as a boy but choose to dress like a girl, that, that's okay. Uh, no one should try to change you. Um, this is just some of the darkness that's around us. Uh, millennials, so maybe you might not like that title, but if you were born in 1981 or before 1986, like in that range from 81 to 96, uh, people our age, our, our peers, are leaving the church in droves, especially those who... I mean, you have to be in the church in order to leave it. But those who were raised in the church, over 50% have left for some extended period of time. This is an indicator of darkness. And darkness always has been and always will be around. But historically, as I've studied this, uh, revival comes when things are very dry and very dark. So... Let's move on to point two. In the midst of darkness, 
And whether it's super dark or just kind of dark, this is true. In the midst of darkness, God chooses to work through faithful people. He chooses to work through faithful people. And we see this in verses 15 to 18. God, the Son, Jesus Christ, he, he told his followers, you are the light of the world. And that's true, no matter how good you are at being a light. <laughs> that's who you are in Christ, but it takes training to really let your light shine well. It doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally. It does come, and it will come, but it takes training to be faithful. And so when we're talking about revival, I want you to know that all faithfulness, all the time, is pleasing to God. But in seasons of revival, what happens is God makes your faithfulness obviously fruitful. So you could be, you know, watering the plant and faithfully watering the plant, and that just, you know, the plant just doesn't grow, or it doesn't show signs of growth. Well, you watering the plant is, is faithfulness to God, and that's pleasing to God, and that does have fruit, even if that plant never comes to life like you hope and expect. But in, in some seasons of history, for God's good, sovereign purposes, he makes our faithfulness obviously fruitful. Tim Keller says it this way, revival is the intensification of the normal operations of the Holy Spirit. So conviction of sin, regeneration, see, seeing, seeing people who were not followers of Christ become followers of Christ. Sanctification, pe seeing people who are followers of Christ grow. Like they, they actually don't talk about training for godliness, they, they train and they grow in godliness. Uh, assurance of salvation, all these things coming through ordinary means of grace, preaching, prayer, service, sharing the gospel. In, the, in revival, God isn't doing something new. He's doing what he's always been doing. And he's doing it the way he's always been doing it. It's just obviously fruitful. And so what happens, what happens is in the midst of darkness, light shines. And, and like Paul says in Ephesians 5, light makes everything visible. So what that might look like, um, our light shining in the midst of darkness. I'll just go back to my examples of the darkness. Um, we need to look at sex rightly, which means if you're happily married, you let people know this is truly the very, very best sexual life that you could have. Not sleeping around, not, you know, enjoying images of women, not not anything like that, not, not conjuring in your mind uh, what, what would this look like? What, what would that be like? It's like, no, this is God's very best for me. If you're single, it's being happily single. And it's not coveting what God has not yet given you. This is what it looks like to shine in the darkness. We, we would express sadness over those caught in addiction because we're convinced that that is slavery. We would offer hope and help to people because we've actually been rescued from it ourselves. We would talk about these things openly in the midst of, in the, in, in the context of trust relationships, okay? But we would train our kids to know the truth. And, and we would train our kids to invite others into the truth as well. 
And, and we wouldn't just be millennials who stuck with the church, that proud minority, we're the remnant, we stuck it out. But we would seek to be the millennials who, you know, believes that God's at work in, in, in those who have left. We, we would seek to be the millennials and the, the non-millennials, the older generation who engages the millennials to, to really show that they're missing out. And again, that's just the surface. That's just beginning to scratch the surface. And you might think, I, I don't know that I could have those types of conversations, Ben. Uh, that's scary. Um, you don't have what it takes. You have who it takes. If Jesus is living in you, you have who it takes to do things that are uncomfortable um, to you, to engage the darkness and let light shine. And here's a really important point. Whether or not revival comes, this is what we're called to do. We're called to be faithful. No matter what the fruitfulness looks like. No matter if it's obvious to us or not. The, the third characteristic of revival is this is not something that we can create or conjure up. That's why when I heard, oh yeah, we're having a revival at our church next month, that it just kind of made me bristle. <laughs> like... How do you put that on the calendar? Um, it's not something you can create. It's not something we can conjure up. Uh, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit in this passage. That is a command, but it's, it's something that's done to us. Be filled. You receive the action. It's done to you. It's like a sailor who puts up a sail. You can do that as a sailor, but you can't make the wind blow, right? Right? And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd he, he put it this way. You have to build the altar. You have to build a place of worship and trust that God will send the fire. And that's how we seek revival. That's how we seek God is to do our part, to build the altar and to trust that God will do his part. Sometimes he sends the fire immediately. Sometimes, like in the case of South Korea, it's decades later. But you can't put this on the calendar. And what they were talking about, I learned, that's called revival meetings. But this is revival. You can't, it's, it's, it's out of our control. It's in God's control. But even if it doesn't ever come in our life, I want you to know this. Your faithfulness is never wasted. Your faithfulness is never wasted. It's usefulness like it's fruit, it's not always visible, but your faithfulness is never wasted. And so if you think about your life, and it's like, okay, what if I spent the rest of my life running an uphill battle of sharing my faith with my coworkers, of faithfully meeting with God's people in small group, pursuing the lost, investing in building up other leaders, but I never got to see, I never got to run downhill. I never got to see, you know, like, God bring about more than I could ever fathom on my own? Did, did I get the short end of the stick? Not if you're training under Christ. Not if you're training under him. Because you'll have experienced him in the midst of your race. And that leads to the last, the last point, the last quality of revival is that the point of revival is never the high. And you should enjoy the high if it comes. Enjoy it appropriately. Just like if you get 
if, you, if you're standing there on your wedding day <laughs> and you don't feel like a rush of emotion, uh, something's different. Something's kind of wrong. <laughs> Enjoy the highs of life, but the point of revival is life. It'd be like if, if I had a heart defect or heart problem and I was rushed to the hospital and they used a defi- defibrillator on me, you know, to bring me back. Um, and then I'm just like, whew, man, thanks, Doc. Uh, I'm going to go back to my normal lifestyle. Uh, the, the same things that took me to that operating table. Uh, but now that I know you can jolt me back, um, you know, I can just, I'll just live my old way again. Uh, you don't want to use Jesus as a defibrillator. <laughs> you really don't. He's not. He came to bring life. And not just spiritual life, not just church life, but life, abundant life. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life to the fullest. Jesus said, I am the life, the resurrection and the life. So if revival comes in, you know, 10 hours or 10 years or whatever, 100 years, this has to be part of our mindset is that our training matters. Our, our learning to be like Jesus daily, our choices of vacuuming the carpet, doing the dishes out of faithfulness to God, of going to work and serving with excellence there out of faithfulness to God, that, that's what life is about. It's about learning to do all of life with Jesus. And the highs are great, We want to seek revival. Why? Because life is good and we want more people to experience life in Christ. But ultimately, whether or not it comes, our responsibility is to train, to grow in love for Christ and the people that he loves, all people. So revival is not our greatest good. Life with God is. And there won't be any revivals in heaven. But life won't get any better than it is in heaven because God has his way in all things. And God is good. So we seek revival because God is good and we want others to enjoy the good God too. We don't want them wandering around, feasting on lesser goods only to find out they're still hungry. So here's some applications from this morning. See the moral decay around you. See it. Don't try to hide yourself or your kids from it as they grow up. See it for what it is. It's very, very sad. It should affect you. (laughs) It's sad, but it's also a hopeful opportunity. Light exposes everything. Light exposes the darkness. So see it for what it is. It's sad, but it's a hopeful opportunity. Another application. In the midst of that, Build the altar. Build the altar and trust that God will send the fire. What that means is ordinary obedience out of trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. In building this church, he knows exactly what he's doing in calling you here. In having you at your job, he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's good. So build the altar. Stay faithful. Lay one log on after another, and you can't bring the fire. I've, I've tried. It, it doesn't work. <laughs> you can't bring the fire, though. 
You have to trust that God will move in ways that only God can move. And as you do that, I I just encourage you to enjoy life with God in every season. Because even if revival doesn't happen, your life is still good. Life is stressful, Ben. How can I enjoy God in that? This week I was stressed numerous times. I was angry for days. That's a training opportunity. This is what we're talking about with training. That does not have to direct my life. It does not have to direct my choices. I get to choose the man that I'm becoming. And you get to choose the person that you're becoming. So one thing that helped me this week, uh, I just started singing. The person in the room next to me might have heard me. Uh, I, I wasn't trying to get them to hear me, but I needed to cast all my cares on the Lord knowing that he cares for me. I needed to reorient my life. Singing is part of training. That's part of the reason we do it every Sunday morning. And, and my last application for us is to remember movements. If you want to be part of a great movement of God, that's good. I think that's good. But movements are always made up of moments. And moments look like this. Am I going to confess this sin or am I going to conceal it? Am I going to let others into my life? Am I even going to let them, am I willing to let other people hurt me in order to pursue change? <laughs> or am I just going to kind of keep myself to myself? Or if you, or if you make a com- commitment, will you keep your commitment? Will you do something outside of your comfort zone? Movements are made up of moments. And so we can't really say we want to be part of a movement if we're not willing to do the work in ordinary moments to say yes to Jesus. So let's pray. And let's just talk to God about whatever uh, we think he's been talking to us about. God, living with our hope in you means having expectation. (laughs) Expectations that you would move, that you are moving. And we don't want to be a part of creating something artificially. We want to be a part of what you're doing. And some of us here today probably don't know what you're doing. Um, Would you give them clarity, God? Would you help us to see our faithfulness as 
important as it really is. And we trust that you'll, you'll make it clear to us what faithfulness is, even if it's changing diapers, washing dishes, going to work. We pray that we would not shortchange you in those activities. Godliness has value for all things. And our hearts are being formed every day with our choices. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us? We know those who have placed their confidence in you, you're present, but we can, we can grieve you. And we can choose to quench you. So we pray that you would fill us and that we'd be faithful to raise the sails of our lives so that you can fill us in all the ways you want to. God, I pray if there's any here today who don't know if they have life in you or if they've been, uh, if their life has been, uh, they've been sleepy (laughs) and not living life. I pray they'd be honest with you and with your people today. Thank you for being our life, Jesus.